0: Take a deep breath and let it out. You might not know it, but indoor air quality is a topic that affects all of us. At Renew Air, we're on a mission to educate listeners on indoor air quality and the factors that impact it. Welcome to Indoor Air Quality IQ. Hello and welcome to IAQIQ, a podcast from Renew Air, where we're discussing all things relating to indoor air quality. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. And on today's episode, the first episode of the show, we're discussing indoor air quality in a COVID-19 world and how things have evolved in recent times. So our subject matter expert who is joining me for today's episode is Nick Agopian. He is the vice president of sales and marketing at Renew Air. So Nick, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today, man?
1: Excellent. Thank you for uh, hosting this. And I look forward to uh, chatting a little bit more about uh, a topic that's extremely top of mind uh, for everybody around the world.
0: You know what? You are absolutely right. And uh, anytime we're talking indoor air quality, I think we should start off just by talking about ventilation and talking about the things that affect indoor air quality more than anything else. So let's start off and, uh, and dive in and talk a little bit about ventilation. How do you define ventilation and what's so important about it?
1: That's an excellent question. And uh, a lot of people don't understand the purpose behind ventilation and and why ventilation is is critical. Uh, People just assume that it happens around you and and no one takes care of it. And and it's not like um, uh, cooling or heating where uh, if you're cold... Um, You want to heat up a space, you turn up the thermostat and you immediately feel the heat. Conversely, if you want to air condition, you immediately feel it cool down. When it comes to ventilating, you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't smell it. And, and you don't know that it's actually happening in the background. Uh, but it has been around for millions of years. Uh, for example, cavemen realized that after they uh, invented fire that they can bring the fire indoors, but it became very smoky. But if, if they ventilated and they had these the shafts and these shoots to push the smoke out, they can heat inside their their, their caves. Uh, the Egyptian stone carvers realized that if they moved the stone outside and, and carved it and brought it back inside because the outside had better air quality because it's obviously more ventilated than the inside uh, of the pyramids, they were uh, more productive. So ventilation has been a concern for uh, occupants, no matter what they were doing, for millions and millions of years. And and this is a funny uh, and interesting analogy. Uh, when you take a look at superchargers in cars, and when you take a look at turbochargers in cars, what exactly is that doing? It's bringing air into the engine so that it breathes better and gives you better performance and better horsepower. The same thing happens indoors. The more air we bring indoors, the better it is for, for occupants.
0: I think that's a really good way of putting it, and I loved the the historical examples as well. But uh, but I'm curious just how recent building trends has affected ventilation. Is ventilation something that is more of uh, uh, something that's more important to discuss now than it was in the past? And have building trends really affected that?
1: Oh, absolutely, and that's an excellent question. Um, if we go back to the uh, '60s and '70s. Uh, we had a ventilation standard um, as developed by ASHRAE and adopted by CODES. And and that was in the range of about 20 and 30 and 40 CFM per person. However, uh, the difference between construction methodologies back in the 60s, 70s and 80s as compared today is the ceiling integrity of these structures. Back in the early, early 1900s, there were approximately 50 different materials that were used for construction. But less than 100 years later now, there are over 55,000 products that are used to build a, uh, a building or, or a home. And, and the reason for that is because of energy conservation. We know that a leaky window brings in uncontrolled air. We know that a leaky door brings in uncontrolled air. And of course... The ceiling integrity of your wall is what determines a separation between the indoors and the outdoors, whether you're in Minneapolis in the middle of January and February or whether you're in Miami and the heat and the humidity in the middle of July um, and August. So uh, what's happened is that when we had 20 and 30 CFM per person back in the 60s and a leaky structure. The net result was actually more in the range of about 80 or maybe 90 or 100 CFM per person because you felt those drafts coming in. Those drafts coming in were a nuisance, but they were ventilating your space during the oil embargo in the 80s for some of those who who lived those times and and remember them we dropped the outdoor air down to five cfm per person and even though the structures were still leaky at five cfm per person there was a tremendous amount of lawsuits because of what they dubbed as deficient indoor air quality in the billions of dollars because they weren't able to ventilate enough even though they were leaky Now today, we never got back to the 20 and 30 CFM per person, but our structures are so tightly sealed that they are leaking in the range of about 0.3 CFM per square foot at 50 pascals. That's extremely tight. Hmm. So by building in a tighter construction, you do have better energy profiles of a building because you're not exchanging air from the outside, which is uncontrolled, and the inside, which is controlled. But you're also not ventilating at the level that you're ventilating at. So, we are essentially living in our own bio-effluence because we don't have that level of exchange that's occurring. So, so, you have two things that are converging. One, we're building our structures tighter and tighter and tighter in order to uh, lower energy costs. But then again, we're not ventilating enough in order to remove the impurities that are indoors. We used to think that products of construction is what prompted deficient indoor air quality, which used to be the case. But with better materials today, even though we're using more, our activity indoors is what's causing the deficient indoor air quality and the chemicals we use, especially during the COVID world where we're using a lot more Windex and ammonia and chlorines from Clorox and so on and so forth.
0: So, that's really interesting. So, if I were to boil it down, and you can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong here, you're, you're the expert, not me. Is it accurate to say then that I have traded energy efficiency for a lower quality of indoor air? Is that correct? That's
1: essentially what has happened because we didn't realize that our activity indoors is what caused deficient indoor air quality. You know, many times we, we we'd hear people say, I have an odor okay, you have an odor, you're smelling something. Or there's moisture and mold for people that may have humidity-related problems, especially down in the South. Once in a while, you'll, you'll hear somebody say carbon monoxide or, or, or radon. Um, so they, they install something accordingly for that. Uh, but we, what we rarely hear today, which is what's compounded the problem, are nitrogen dioxide, formaldehyde, or all types of aldehydes, ozone, total volatile organic compounds or semi-volatile organic compounds, and something that's very critical, which is PM2.5, which is particle matter 2.5 micron. And and that is something that's a huge concern because these contaminants that are now indoors, you can't smell, you can't see, and you can't touch. And since they're not there, we don't think that they have an impact on us. Hmm. Even a particle like PM2.5 which is something that you've actually seen. If you think about uh, waking up on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and the sun just happens to be coming in at the right angle, um, that stuff floating in the air where the sun ray comes in, that's PM2.5. That's a particle that's so light and so small that it stays stays suspended and, and moves through the air in a Brownian movement, which is right around our breathing zone, and we inhale it and as we move, it moves through tissue and ends up in our bloodstream and now is a promoter of heart attacks and stroke. Wow. It's really concerning. And and you know, we've done so many things to to try to improve our life. And for some of those who who remember, there used to be paints. And if you painted a room, you couldn't use the room for about a day or two days or three days. But then the smell would dissipate and you can use the room, which was great. Uh, but now, uh, people didn't like that. People didn't like the smell of pain. So, they went from to- TVOCs, which is total volatile organic compounds, to SVOCs, which is semi-volatile organic compounds. And you don't smell the SVOCs. But the problem is that with TVOCs, you smelt them for two, three days, and then they were gone. With SVOCs, you don't smell them, but they off-gas for up to 25 years. And they're constantly having a negative impact slowly. So it's the kind of thing where how heavy is something or how does something impact you? If you were to take a um, like a large bottle of water and you can pick it up and drink from it and put it back down. Now, take that large bottle of water, extend your hand out and keep holding it. It'll get heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier <laughs> to the point where you have to put it down. Right. There's a prolonged effect. The same thing. It's kind of like cigarette smoking with these contaminants. There's a prolonged effect that occurs and it may not impact you right away. But the accumulation of all of these things over a lifespan of people is how you have a detrimental effect at the end of your life and you have impacts. And I can talk about that a little bit later. On, on, on some of the research that's been out there called Valley, which is disability adjusted life here.
0: Interesting. That, that That's really fascinating. You know, and, and you mentioned uh, just that fact that due to COVID, more people are spending time indoors than maybe they were previously or more people are definitely spending time in their homes. I think that's definitely fair to say, right? So um, I don't think I spent as much time outside doing things with friends uh, this past spring, summer, fall, the way I normally would, right? So these these things that you're mentioning are are compounding them because we're all spending more times in our home now. So this is a, an issue that's maybe a bigger issue than it's ever been.
1: You know, you hit the bullseye on the bullseye on that one. Um, when we take a look at code and code says, okay, you need X amount of outdoor air per person at, for example, in a house, as you alluded to, that is designed based on, we know people sleep in homes. Um, we know that people wake up and they either go to school or they go to work and then they come back and then the home once again uh, gets loaded with people, there's some activity, you know, you're eating dinner, you're maybe watching TV and then you go to sleep. And then the whole cycle starts all over again. So there's this kind of like a, a flywheel effect or a sink effect. You have an activity, contaminants build up, the activity dis- disappears and the contaminants get flushed back down and and, and that keeps repeating itself. However, that minimum code requirement is now being challenged because that's not occurring anymore. You have all these people inside a space consistently. They're constantly breathing. They're constantly doing stuff, no matter what it is, whether it's cooking or whether it's cleaning or or just our own bio are contaminating the indoors. So the home doesn't have the capacity to be able to pull down the contaminants in a in a non event situation, like at night when everybody's sleeping or like when everybody's either uh, at school or at work. And there may be it goes from having four or five people in a house down to one or two and then back up again. So these systems are now being challenged and absolutely, if anything, People should be looking at code and looking at the design of homes and saying, you know what, I want a higher performing structure, whether it's a home or an office building or a school, to say, I don't want code. I want to be above code. I want a higher performing building means that you need higher performing stats or statistics. Uh, A lot of people think that when somebody builds to code, that they're getting something that's good actually when someone is building to code standards it means they have put in the absolute minimum they have to put in so they don't go to jail Hmm. that's what code is these are minimum standards that have to be abided to but nothing says that you can't go more like for example if you take a look at google they'll turn around they'll say you know what we are going to increase the amount of outdoor air by double for each person, because we know that an individual performs better if you increase the amount of outdoor air being brought in. And in fact, Harvard conducted some research that proves exactly that. It proves that if you were to increase the amount of outdoor air per person, and this happens to be in a commercial setting, uh, by double, your cost for that individual to temper that air for an entire year is anywhere between as little as $10 per person to $40 per person. But the actual productivity output of that individual is equal to $6,500. Wow. Imagine, if you invested $40 for an entire year, you received back $6,500. Why wouldn't anyone, anybody want to do that? So ventilation becomes very critical on how the physiological operation of the human body works especially with engagement inside these structures as you alluded to a second ago, which is extremely tight.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in the case of my wife and I, where we also have two dogs, right? So uh I think that they're I think that they add to the problem.
1: Actually I, I do want to say something to that. Yeah. You're right. And and I belong to Ashley Standard 62.2 and 62.1, which is the residential and commercial uh, standard, respect for, uh, respectively. And what we are starting to realize in 62.2 is that, yes, we only assumed X amount of people. We never assumed any animals Hmm. in our standard. And in fact, animals breathe more. And in fact, animals are, for lack of better words, have a more complex biodome, around them, because every human being has a biodome around them, but theirs is a little bit more complex and a little bit more um, enriched with contaminants or whatever you want to call it, you know, like dander and so on and so forth. Sure. And when they do sleep, they breathe out more carbon dioxide than we do as humans. And even as when we sleep, we breathe out even more than when we're awake. Um, and we'll touch on carbon dioxide in a second. So for sure, that is something that has to be taken into account because that's exactly right. Where we didn't have any concern about animals inside of the space. Now, forget about one. Like you just alluded to, you have two. <laughs> well, you have three pets, whether it's two dogs and a cat or two cats and a dog, whatever the case may be. And, and that contributes to deficient indoor air quality, or to the contaminants that are indoors. And what ends up happening is sometimes we do have an odor. So what do we do? We add a mask. We add some kind of chemical in the air so we think that it smells fresh. But all we've done is added more chemicals. So you have a feeling that it smells better, but you also have an adverse chemical that's the underlying structure of that composition that has a negative impact on the body after the smell is gone.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. It takes a. Uh, our house uses a lot of Febreze. I'll just tell you that. So uh, I, I think that that uh, I think that that contributes to your point. I think you're absolutely right. So uh, you were talking about carbon carbon dioxide and talking about uh, you know pet dander things along those lines. So which contaminants really pose a threat? What which what should we be concerned about when it comes to the fact that we're not ventilating things maybe the way that we should be?
1: So, besides all the contaminants I talked about a second ago, which is uh, aldehydes and nitrogen dioxide and and PM2.5, but something that's interesting um, that uh, came out of some research by Dr. Don Colbert out of Seattle is what comes out of our laundry room? And if I was to ask you what is in your laundry detergent, you can't tell me because it's an unregulated industry. But what I can tell you from his analysis is that laundry rooms generate about twenty-five different volatile organic compounds, of which seven of them are hazardous pollutants, and two chemicals, acetaldehyde and benzene, are grouped as carcinogens by the United the Environmental Protection Agency. Whoa! Well, yes, exactly. And what's interesting out of the research, when he completed his mass balance equations, uh, he found that all the laundry rooms in Seattle, Washington generated the equivalent of 6% of the acetaldehyde and benzene from automobile emissions in Seattle, Washington. What that means is when you're running your laundry room, whether it's, it's, it's uh, you're cleaning or whether you're drying, it's as if like you can turn on your car, take 6% of those two gases and just dump them into your house. We don't realize that. Hmm. You know what's interesting? I heard from somebody that if you wanted to go hunting, Forget about buying some uh, repellents that you typically buy. What this individual told me is he takes two of the dryer sheets. We won't talk about any names, but take two of the dryer sheets, put one under, um, the left side of your belt on your waist and another one on the right side of your belt, you know, around your waist and just go into the woods. And I guarantee you, you will not get one mosquito bite or any bug bites whatsoever because they're smart enough to know that whatever's in those sheets are toxic and hazardous and they stay away, believe it or not. It's unbelievable at what we do indoors. And you alluded to carbon dioxide. We always thought carbon dioxide was a surrogate um, that when it goes up in concentration, that means we're not ventilating enough so we have other impurities. And and that's an interesting correlation uh, when we thought that carbon dioxide was inert and didn't affect us. But it actually does affect us and has an adverse effect, even though we may breathe it out and it comes out of our bodies. There was some research that was conducted by NASA uh, because there were mistakes that were being made in space and so on and so forth. And they looked at food and exercise and and what they're wearing to try to understand why there's a discomfort with these people. And what they realized is that carbon dioxide has a negative impact on how our bodies work. So if the carbon dioxide elevates within the space, the carbon dioxide in your lungs elevate to end up where you have a steady state concentration between the environment and your lungs. The higher the CO2 concentration in your lungs, the less oxygen you have. The higher CO2 concentration in your lungs means that you have an increase of CO2 in your blood. And there are reversible and irreversible impacts. One of the Reversible impacts is you have a, your, your brain that says, hey, I need more oxygen. It's the dominant organ. So what happens is it dilates the vessels in your brain and more oxygen comes up to your brain. But what happens when you dilate the vessels in your brain? Your skull is stationary, so it starts putting pressure against your brain. You have dizziness and nausea. You can throw up. You're not focused. The second you go outside and it, let's say it's five o'clock in the afternoon and you're leaving the office, and you go outside you get a call from your buddy says, hey, you want to go do a spin class, but you've been outside for about one or two minutes and the oxygen level has increased in your blood and suddenly you have this jolt of energy and yes, let's go do some exercises. You know, because you've, you've reversed what occurred in your, in, in your blood. But there's something that's irreversible. We now know that CO2 is an acid and then you have something called respiratory acidosis that attacks bone marrow. That's irreversible. So what we thought was inert actually does have a negative impact on us. So what happened is Lawrence Berkeley turned around and said, oh, well, let's just try to understand if that's true on Earth. And they conducted some research, and no matter what they did, they realized that there is an adverse effect to cognitive decline when you increase CO2 concentrations in the levels that we thought were normal. Hmm. And no matter what you did, you had... Less cognitive activity. We know that test scores in schools can increase between 12 and 18 percent if you lowered CO2 concentration closer to what you typically have outside. The average concentration outside, the last time I checked globally, is around 430 ppm. But we have some schools that operate at 2,000, 3,000, and 4,000 ppm, which is obscene. Which is absolutely obscene. Now, I'm not saying that, that as you increase CO2 concentration and somebody asks you, uh, you know, what's two plus two? You're not going to say five. But in the research, what they had is they said, okay, here's a hotel owner. There's a fire. Um, the, uh, the fire chief says, okay, listen, these are where your patrons are. These are where your employees are. How can I get my firemen inside? and take these people out safely. What's the best way to do that? And now you have to start to think and there's decision making that has to occur. That kind of cognitive uh, function does decline with increased concentra- uh, with increased CO2 concentration. It is scientifically proven that that actually occurs. And we know that if we can lower this concentration, the better off we are when it comes to the indoor environment, whether it's in homes, Meaning that if you lower the CO2 concentration in your bedroom, which can go up to about thirty five and 5,000 ppm, but if you can lower it back down to even as little as 1,000 ppm or 700 or 800 ppm, your function, whether it's cognitive function or physical function and performance, the day after the night you slept in, is improved just by lowering your concentration of CO two, and the most sustainable way of doing that, and the only way of doing that, is obviously through ventilation. You could filter, uh, but it's extremely expensive, and 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 it's something that only NASA can afford, kind of thing. So so CO two is 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 a very interesting compound that we now know has some uh, adverse effects. And and what's interesting is that a conclusion that came out of the um, a Lawrence Berkeley National Lab study was that overall, this is quote unquote, overall, the number of reported statistically significant improvements in health with increased ventilation rates far exceeded the anticipated chance improvements in health. Meaning that if you ventilated your structure, whether it's your home, or whether it's your office space or your school, your chances of being healthy immediately today and prolonged for when you're older far exceeds the potential of taking vitamins or eating better or exercising or going for a walk. Hmm. Ventilation, quote unquote. And this is a study that, that came out in late 2019. It's less than a year old. Well, maybe it's about a year old now.
0: Wow, that's a that's a really powerful statistic and statement because a lot of people are very interested in, okay, what am I putting in my body in a food sense, vitamins, you know, exercise, doing things like that. And then we always wonder, okay, what's what's the missing thing? Why am I still not as healthy maybe as I should be? Or why do, um, you know, certain things still continue to happen to people even if they outwardly seem to be doing all the things that they need to be doing to be healthy? And this is not to say that you can solve every potential, you know, health thing that could, that could happen to a person. But it does seem that we frequently ignore the quality of the air that you're taking into your body. We think so much about food, about different things like that, and ignore air to a certain extent.
1: Absolutely. Uh, we can mathematically prove today from science that, yes, you can improve your life today, improve your school test scores better your possibility to succeed in business and live a healthier life without disability when you're older and not die young, uh, based on the research from something called, as I alluded to earlier, DALI, which is Disability Adjusted Life Year. They looked at 75 different items that impact our life that cause us to have asthma and liver damage and damage to our central nervous system, and of course the spread of diseases like SARS. And so on and so forth. But they looked at things like blood, high blood pressure, tobacco smoking, alcohol use, uh, low diet and fruits, high body mass index, childhood uh, overweight, uh, childhood underweight, uh, a diet with high sodium, a lot of different things, iron deficiency. Uh, and these are some of the top 10 reasons why we have problems in health with our lives as we grow older. We live with disability when we're older and then we die young. Two of the top 10 reasons that I, that I didn't indicate happens to be because of deficient indoor air quality, household pollution uh, and, and the use of solid fuels where we end up with, with contaminants inside our space. But in general, it's gaseous contaminants and particulate matter that impact us. We can show mathematically that PM2.5, radon, formaldehyde, acrolein, ozone, carbon, uh, sorry, um, nitrogen dioxide, ammonia, acetaldehyde, um, all of these different types of chemicals can lower your lifespan and decrease quality of life especially when we're older, by simply lowering the concentration, we can mathematically calculate the quads and, and what they call DALI numbers and DALI lost years using a formula that was developed by, uh, uh, once again, the uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And, and they showed, and I'm looking at some statistics here, that if we just looked at base infiltration only without ventilation, and, and I, I can elaborate a little further if anybody's interested and reaches out to me, but they would have 160 DALI lost years uh, if they don't ventilate. If they use unbalanced mechanical ventilation, which is like your bathroom exhaust fan, it goes down to 90. But if you use balanced ventilation, like with energy recovery ventilation equipment, like what we manufacture, you can bring it down to 70 DALI lost years. What we're saying is that we can mathematically prove from science that, yes, you can improve your life by simply ventilating. We unfortunately focus on things like if we're going to talk about homes, we're talking about homes, but it could be the same thing for offices uh, because we spend 90 percent of our time indoors. About 60 percent of that is is inside our homes. But we focus on can I have the granite countertop for ten thousand dollars? Or can I put in marble floors or can I have a better bathroom for $50,000 as compared to installing a $2,000 ventilation unit that can improve your life? That is mathematically and empirically proven, can be offered for people. And then at the end of the day, by simply increasing your ventilation, and just as an FYI, if you take a look at the world and we're talking like the UK, Russia, Poland, Netherlands, Italy, Lithuania, Greece, and all of these people. Mm -hmm. Some of these places, like the Netherlands, are three times us when it comes to ventilation. Everybody else is almost double what we have in ventilation. And we consider the United States the world leader. I consider the United States the world leader in everything, except when it comes to ventilation. It's unbelievable at how it is the lowest compared to what the rest of the world do, even though we know that it has adverse effect. But that's changing, standards are changing. Now at ASHRAE, we're starting to understand how these chemicals and particles enter our nostrils, enter our eyes, enter our noses, even get absorbed into our skin, end up in our bloodstream and circulate throughout our blood and how these chemicals have these adverse effects. And we are looking at increasing these ventilation rates such that we can offer that better quality of life for people moving forward.
0: So Nick, obviously, the dominant uh, topic of conversation these days amongst anybody that's having any kind of conversation really tends to revolve around COVID-19, right? So in light of discussing indoor air quality and things of that nature, and knowing that we live in a COVID-19 world at the moment... How, how can we rationalize these two things together and how do they go together?
1: That's an excellent question. And, and you're so right. It is uh, a topic of concern. And, and regardless on whether it's around a, uh, an engineering table or a dinner table amongst somebody that's not even related to the HVAC industry or an engineer, it is a concern. And, and what's great about the solution that's in place is that ventilation can lower the potential threat of of contracting the the disease uh, simply by a value called exposure. Now, when we take a look at all of the research and the modeling that was done around that uh, restaurant in China where uh, people got uh, infected, the people that were on the same table, some of them got infected and some of them didn't get infected. And people on a table that's either adjacent to them or a little further away, some of them got infected and some of them didn't get infected. And and the main reason for that is because of air movement. And what happens is when we're looking at uh, the potential of an individual being infected, it is a function of concentration of the SARS virus. To attract COVID-19. Because to be clear, SARS is the virus, COVID-19 is the disease. And you have to have a certain level of exposure and concentration in order to have enough SARS virus in your body in order to get COVID-19. So when we take a look at ventilation, what does that mean? When we're supplying air into a space, whether it's a home, an office or a school, uh, that air has a certain outdoor air component. And, And we'll just talk about cubic feet, because when we look at airflow, we're talking about cubic feet per minute. So if you have one cubic foot of air that's being taken from the room, brought back to the air conditioning or heating system, and then supplied back into the space, a certain chunk of that one cubic foot has an outdoor air component in it. Sometimes it's as little as 5%, sometimes it's 7%, sometimes it's 10%. But the rest of it, you know, may have potentially that contaminant being SARS within that one cubic foot of airspace. Now, if we were to take that one cubic foot of airspace and bring it back to the HVAC system, and rather than just replacing 5% of it or 7% of it, but replace 50% of it, At that point, you've taken 50% of that contaminated air, whether it's, as we talked about earlier, PM2.5 or aldehydes or CO2 or whatever, and specifically SARS-CoV-2 gets thrown out and you're bringing in fresh, clean outdoor air that is SARS-CoV-2 free and being supplied into the space. So what have we done at this point? What you've done is you've lowered the concentration of the SARS virus within the space and lowering the potential exposure rate of that, of an individual that may be beside another person that has the the SARS virus or the COVID-19 disease. When we look at all of the research that's been done around the world and all of the cognizant authorities around the world, the number one defense strategy is to ventilate. You've heard a lot of people say, open your doors, open your windows, bring more air in. That's obviously ventilating because you're opening the windows, you're opening the doors. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier in the 1960s with leaky doors and leaky windows. You had more air coming in. Now, obviously, as the summers left us and as the fall has left us and we're getting into the winter season, it makes it impossible in certain places to actually do that. Unless you're in Miami or Houston, where you you can possibly open the the window and the door, especially during the day, you can't do that in Minneapolis and Wisconsin and New York and Chicago and so on and so forth. So at that point, ventilation and more importantly, controlled ventilation with MERV 13 filtration is the most sustainable way in lowering the potential of exposure by lowering the concentration of SARS virus indoors by simply ventilating. So the solution to pollution is dilution.
0: Absolutely. And we have uh, a lot more coming up on uh, future episodes of the podcast about ventilation. So if you're interested in different ventilation strategies and also how you compare increased ventilation with lower uh, energy costs, those are coming up on uh, upcoming episodes of the podcast. So you're going to want to stay tuned. You're going to want to subscribe to IAQIQ to stay up to date with the latest uh, on all things indoor air quality from the experts at Renew Air. Uh, Nick Agopian, Vice President of Sales and Marketing from Renew Air. Nick, thank Thank you so much for joining me today and uh, sharing a little bit more about ventilation, what we need to know and why it's so vital and important in our lives today. Thank you. And I look forward to the next episode. I do as well. I am already looking forward to it. And uh, everybody out there, thank you for listening to this podcast. Again, uh, make sure you subscribe, IAQIQ uh, from Renew Air, and also visit Renew Air on uh, on the web as well to get more information. But of course, make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with the latest, and we'll be back soon with those new episodes. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kerr. Thanks for listening.